Yeah. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. Things good? Good to see y'all. Everything, burritos, coffee okay? All right. Excellent. Well, it's great to see y'all this morning. Looking forward to our time together. Um, Going to do something a little different to get us started this morning. So I want you to fill in the blank. This is a quote from Jesus. Jesus says, you are the blank of the world. Problem. What? Problem. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't noticed, Kurt's got this little cynical edge to him. <laughs> yeah, we, we all, we all, I mean, most of us in the room, you got it just like that. You are the light of the world. So before you got here this morning, did you consider that? Like, we talk about that, uh, about us being the light, and there's just, like, it's... How often is it that, like at the forefront of who we are every day, right? Well, Jesus also said about himself, I am the light of the world. And there's, so there's this movement from Jesus being the light to shining upon us and then us reflecting that light uh, back out into the world. So here's the question I want you to ponder for today and um, moving out into our day. Like, do you feel worthy to receive the light of Jesus? And who do you feel is worthy to receive your light? I normally read from the Psalms, but today, uh, given what we're going to be looking at in Mark, I want to read from Isaiah chapter 60. Just a few verses of Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 5. And if you want to refer to these, these verses back through your day as I kind of leave, dangle that challenge out in front of you, um, man, these are some good words. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. So God, we are grateful for the morning, for the time that we as brothers can come together uh, around these tables and around your word. And that we pray that as we uh, open up your word together, or that that light will shine into our souls, or that there will be something that will shift a little bit in us today, so that as we leave, that we will be more better prepared to let your light shine through us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Mark chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 13. It's going well for Jesus. 
despite an initial uh, hard time in Nazareth, he has attracted huge crowds in Galilee, in, in the north shore, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Magdala. He really can hardly function because there's so many people that are coming to see him. Part of that's miracles. Part of that's the way he's teaching. Uh, last week we saw he's attracted the attention now of other rabbis, um, and they're they're quizzing him. They're trying to figure him out. Uh, he is uh, having a an interesting time with them. He's not shying away from identifying himself as not just any rabbi, um, but he is definitely the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. If you remember, we talked about that, that he really is God. And so uh, it, it's going well, but but the, you can see the fissures developing of, of what's going to happen. And then just when we think we know the pattern of Jesus, he will completely and utterly shock people by his next act. And... I want you to sort of see the insight here into Jesus' character and why, why he does this. But 13, then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that gathered around him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collection booth. Come, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. That night, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to, his, to be his dinner guests, along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. There were many people of this kind uh, there were many people of this kind among the crowds that followed Jesus. But when some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with people like that. They said to his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call sinners, not just those who think they're already good enough. So a few things, a lot of things, <laughs> we have to look at today. I'm going to try something deep dive, and you can tell me if it's good or bad. But my my passion is to, as much as we can, really understand the way this was given to us in terms of language and culture and history. So there is an element of language here that's going on that sometimes we miss. I don't know how to say this quickly. Uh, there's a linguistic concept in Semitic languages called composite duality. And what you do is you take the two extremes, the two poles of something, and you describe those, and it's a way of reflecting everything in the middle. Uh, let me try to explain that easier. Um, so we say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. So we're sort of laying it out there. We, we mean all, all people, right? We're not just talking to uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We're, we're trying to give the four posts, right? And it's everybody in between it. Semitic culture is really strong in this idea. The way they tell you about everything is by telling you about ex the, the two poles, the borders, the extremes. 
You definitely have that going on in Mark and most of the Gospels. Who does Jesus come to save, to speak to, to involve? To who? The sinners. But who who else? I mean, does he just talk to sinners? Now, what, why do you say that? They're not the Pharisees or um, the other group, my apologies. Sadducees, yeah. They're not the higher others who have the money or anything. They're just the normal. I don't want to say peasantry, but I don't say peasantry. Just the normal folks. See, that's really why I'm trying to get into this weird linguistic concept because we do sometimes run with that idea that Jesus liked the poor, that he liked the average person. Because what they're doing is they're showing these extremes of society. And it's a way of them showing he's touching everybody. We get into the mind that Jesus didn't like Pharisees. And yet Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, some of his most intense followers are Pharisees. These tax collectors, are they rich or are they poor? They are the wealthiest people in the community. I mean, this is a whole level above. And so, yeah, since the 60s, we got on this kick. Well, Jesus loved the poor. Well, yes, but he also loved the rich. And he loved everything in between. And so Mark particularly is using this method. Again, you show the duality, the extremes, to show everybody is included. Um, We see this in the Old Testament. They will say, God spoke to the Jews, and then he spoke to the Gentiles. And we think, oh, this is special for the Gentiles. But it's their way of saying, it's us and them, and everything in between. So it's just an element of language and culture that sometimes we have to stop and realize what's happening. So the tax collectors. This is a very virulent powerful topic, and I don't know, I always try to do this, and I don't do a great job, but uh, this is a complicated process uh, with tax collectors. So I've got a video that will help us. Um, let's, uh, let's look a little bit at tax collectors. I don't know if we'll go through this whole video, but um, hopefully this, this will get us started thinking of who these people were. Welcome to How They Did It, a show where we take a look at the daily lives of our ancestors. It's often been said that nothing in this world is certain but death and taxes. This has been true for countless generations since the dawn of our earliest civilizations. Today we'll examine the experiences of taxpayers and collectors in the Roman world. In modern times, we're familiar with a system of taxation which collects fees on a wide range of economic activities, such as income, payroll, property, sales, capital gains, dividends, imports, estates, and gifts. The list often seems to go on and on. This huge administrative task is imposed and enforced by the government, and often falls under the purview of a powerful bureaucratic body such as the IRS in the United States. Travel back several thousand years before the rise of such institutions, and one wonders how taxes were collected. Well, in the early days of the Republic, when the city was small, Rome actually collected its own taxes. This was rather primitive, and these taxes were mostly levied as a percentage of an individual's wealth 
as opposed to income that governments do nowadays. So the way they would have done this in the past is you would actually literally send someone out and they would include measurements of uh, someone's land, their homes, the real estate, slaves, animals, personal items, and monetary holdings. So you can imagine someone walking out there in the fields to a local estate and just counting up all these quantities and trying to make a rough assessment of just how much is this person worth in terms of their wealth, how much goods and monetary possessions do they have. And then they take this total valuation and they would use this to assess an individual's overall wealth and then you know tally this every five years as a part of a census and then this data would then in turn be used to put someone into a certain property class and this was actually built into the way uh, Romans actually configured their military obligations with the wealthiest uh, being expected to supply you know more equipment and armor and be in a certain class of the military system uh, whereas you know the the more impoverished folks would probably have less stuff to their name and you have this superimposed with you know wealth class and then also age groups and that's eventually what forms kind of the, the basis of the the development of the Roman legions but anyways that's an aside so back to the taxes at hand here so when they're collecting these taxes rates would generally be fixed for the various classes and are estimated to have been around one percent under normal circumstances however in the case of uh, an emergency like a, a upcoming war or raid or something going on uh, taxes might be increased to around three percent we uh, we calculate and these are all kind of rough figures but you get a sense of what's going on here However, as Rome grew, it became harder and harder to properly assess wealth accurately and then in turn collect taxes efficiently. In addition, conquests increasingly made up more and more of the state's revenue, reducing the need to focus on developing a proper state-managed system of taxation. In fact, by 167 BC, the Republic had so enriched itself through war that it no longer needed to levy a wealth tax on its Italian citizens. Though we have to admit that they still did pay some form of vectigalia, which were essentially duties on things like imports, exports, or the use of public land. So, you can never really get away from paying taxes. Uh, in any case, uh, with the tax burden shifting to the provinces and the small republic quickly transforming into a sprawling empire, a new, unique system of tax collection would emerge. What we find is that Rome's rapid rise to power in the Mediterranean quickly outpaced its ability to keep up administratively. When new provinces were added, their governance was usually granted to a consul or proconsul and their associated staff, which numbered no more than a dozen or maybe a couple dozen. Though such rule was theoretically unlimited, in reality and in all practicality, this small group of Roman officials had to rely quite heavily on local administrative institutions for support. When it came to collecting taxes, they also sought outside help. What developed was a system of tax farming, whereby the Roman government privatized its tax collection. The system worked as follows. First, Roman officials would estimate the approximate tax to be extracted from a region. Next, they would host an auction to give away the rights to collect this money on their behalf. This would be attended by publicani, or private contractors, who were actually involved in a lot of the Roman economy, but in this case we'll be dealing with their activities when it came to taxes. Here, at the auction, let's say for instance the government had said that they wanted to collect 1 million sesterces. What would happen is these publicani would come in with their company and said, hey, I will be able to collect 1.1 million sesterces. And then the next one would say 1.2 million, and eventually whoever basically had the highest bid, uh, well, they would win the contract. And now what would happen is they would have the government backing to go ahead and collect those taxes. This was to a benefit to the Roman government in that uh, basically it reduced their administrative burden and risks. And they could count on, you know, setting a fixed amount of taxes and getting that for sure, despite, you know, whatever economic fluctuations, they could expect to get that money up front. And so it made it very consistent and low risk. 
Now, the benefit for the Pupukani was that even if they may have won just a bid for, you know, let's say 1.3 million sesterces, that 1.3 million sesterces that was in the hole, well, when they went to the provinces, they would be able to collect that and far more. So, uh, you know, because they had the backing of Roman authorities, they could call on legions, they could call on the help of local governors, and they could even pay thugs to collect the taxes at sword point. And so, yeah, maybe they, you know, had to pay the government, but at the end of the day, they could maybe even collect 2 million or more sesterces and just line their pockets with tons of money. And the amount of money to be made here was surely a huge problem because it led to ridiculous amounts of corruption, exploitation, and oppression. Bribes would be paid to Roman administrators to ensure that they looked the other way, and uh, you'd have all kinds of shenanigans. Such was the wealth of the provinces, especially in the east, that politicians would virtually bankrupt themselves to gain control of one, with the expectation that they would quickly recoup any losses with huge profits and become fabulously wealthy. Even Crassus, who was renowned for his wealth, found his own 200 million sesterces dwarfed by funds raised by his colleagues plundering the provinces. His rival Pompey, for instance, was said to have been able to buy and sell Crassus many times over with the silver and gold he had collected. This exploitation, however, did not go unchallenged. Heavy taxation at the hands of the Publicani often pushed the population into unrest or revolt. Sometimes, excessive taxation was even regulated by the Romans, though this was less for altruistic reasons than the machinations of jealous politicians seeking to curb the money-gathering operations of their rivals. So I know it's a lot, but I wanted to give you the overview, the, the complexity of this, this situation, what the Romans are doing. They're no longer really collecting taxes from their own because they can make so much more money off the provinces, the places that they've conquered. It's, it's a cash machine. This is, and it's hard to convey because, you know, we, we think of taxes that our government uses, you know, to support us and take care of us. This is not what Rome is doing. They're absolutely taking the blood out of these places to enrich these proconsuls to make them wealthy so they have the money then to go back and play politics or have their own legions. I mean, really, the, the civil war between Romans happens because they make so much money um, in the provinces. This is why Cleopatra and Pompey and Caesar and all that go to the east in order to challenge Rome, because they're making so much money. So in the provinces, like Judah, they don't want to rely on Roman public officials. Like they said, the bureaucracy is hard. So they put these bids out to the publicani, they call them tax collectors. That's the word that scripture is using. Um, and this is what I want from you, and everything above the top is, is yours. So again, these are Jews that are doing this to their own people. If we had an hour this morning, I would take you through just some of the extremes examples of what these publicani do to collect taxes. Regularly, they kidnap members of your family and will hold them hostage. They publicly flog people to try to get money. I mean, it's not just the Jews that revolt over this tax system, but it's it's from Britain uh, to to Armenia, in North Africa, Egypt, everybody is sick because I mean Rome is literally putting an IV up to you, or, or, or you know, to take the blood out of you. They're going to kill you. They do not care. And to have the front face of that to be one of your own people. I mean, what's the greatest traitor you've ever seen among your? 
our kind. I don't even think we have something that visceral. Um, one uh, rabbi has, in modern times, compared this to kapos. So in World War II in the concentration camps, there were Jews that volunteered to work for the Nazis to guard their fellow inmates as long as they were the last ones to die. Now what kind of low life do you have to be to do that? That's kind of what these tax collectors are. So Levi, who we know is Matthew, and a lot of interesting things going on with his names, but this is... This is horrible. I mean, this is not a good guy. Um, One of the classic examples of completely missing the point in Scripture, remember the story of Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus was what kind of man? Wee little man. Oh, he was such a cute little boy. And he, oh, he wanted to see Jesus, and he climbed a tree. And we tell our kids, holy cow, we missed the point altogether on that. Zacchaeus is another one of these tax collectors. They're not saying he's a small person. They're saying he's he's a small person. You see what I mean? He, he's, he's scum. He, he's an invertebrate. He's a low-class trash exploiting his own people. And so the day that Jesus goes, again, as a rabbi of great distinction, goes to one of these guys. I mean... I, it's like Jesus going up to a member of the SS. You guys know the the Waffen SS? So in World War II, when the Germans start to run out of soldiers, they give uh, opportunities to certain nationalities to join the German army, to join the the SS, the the Waffen SS, the armed SS. So you have like Ukrainians and Poles and uh, some French uh, that fight for the Germans. It's that kind of thing that Jesus is is hanging out with. This is crazy. If he's just thinking about being popular or influencing people or having a great religious movement, this is the last group of people that he should talk to. And then he not only calls one to be his disciple, which is the greatest distinction, uh, greatest honor that he could give this guy, um, he does what with him? goes have dinner. Now, do you suppose who served a better meal? The relatively modest middle class, maybe the upper middle class fishermen who are soft collaborators with the Romans, or one of these publicani that is raking in the millions and millions of Caesarsi. Who served a better dinner? Oh, Matthew! Holy cow! You're going to eat. Eat well, baby. Uh, So again, this is not what they would expect uh, from a rabbi who is from Galilee, who's conservative. So so let's talk about his name a little bit. Um, And this kind of gives you a little sense. It's like you probably heard me or or Kurt or somebody say this in the past um, that hurting people do what? Hurt people. Right? And uh, again, we we have this tendency, it's kind of human nature, it's broken human nature to distance on, distance ourselves from people who are hurting you. Right? And so, Levi, that's like well, we know exactly 
where, where, what tribe this guy has his lineage from. Mm-hmm. That is the priestly tribe. Uh, and what is the purpose of the priesthood, right? Sorry, guys. Come on. What's the purpose of the priesthood? What are the two words that priests do? That's right. Very good. Avad and Shamar. And so not only do, do, does this uh, uh, certain tribe, uh, the Levites, the priests, do they lead the charge for Israel to serve and protect uh, on behalf of Yahweh, uh, but the whole nation. So they're like the ones that are to, uh, this, this is my favorite phrase, to stand in the gap between God and the nation. Between God and people, they are to, to stand in the gap and mediate the presence of God to the people. That's what priests and Levites do. And what is he doing? The exact opposite. Kurt, Kurt and I were pre- preparing for this yesterday. It's like, Kurt said it well, uh, it's like he's mediating the presence of Rome to his own people, right? What led this guy to do that? And here, here's the, interrupt real quick, here's the ultimate irony. Uh, I think the reason they're using Levi here instead of Matthew, what he's normally known as, is that in the original system that God put together, the Levite priests collected the taxes for the temple. So the tithe was paid to the Levite that would travel around. So in a sense, Matthew is still a Levite, right? But he's not collecting for God. He's yeah, collecting no, for no, Rome. No, that's, that's exactly right. That's where the word levy comes from. You could be right. You could be right. Brent, my granddad's name was Levi, but it was spelled L-E-V-Y. And he hated it when people called him Levy. Hated it. Because, of course, he hated paying his taxes, too, uh, for sure. Uh, But anyway, uh, and so hurting people do hurtful things. Something has to give for a Jewish person to collaborate with the Romans on this level. Peter, James, and John, and uh, Andrew, they were collaborating with the Romans on one level, for sure. But this is a whole new game that, um, in essence, the, uh, the leaders of Israel would have seen these tax collectors as one of the main reasons why Israel was in the situation that they were in. Um, that they were the ones that were causing the problems that were, in essence, enabling Rome to do what Romans did. Enabling it. And yet it's Jesus who shows up for this guy and says, no, I want you to follow me. I want to show him this video, Kurt, uh, of uh, The Chosen. Maybe you're familiar with The Chosen. Uh, Curiously, what Pastor Kurt was sharing at the beginning was uh, the extremes. So in the uh, in this is uh, episode I think uh, seven of uh, season one of the Chosen, and right before we break to the scene, I'm going to show you of this scene that we've just read. Uh, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting. So. That, that famous conversation, you must be born again. That, uh, and then Jesus goes on to say, uh, uh, 
that uh, the God so loved the world. That's the conversation he's just had with Nicodemus. And here is Jesus calling. And so notice some of these dynamics at work. The guy that has the conversation with Peter after Jesus calls Matthew, uh, the guy that has the conversation with Jesus right as he calls Matthew, that's Peter. So just kind of keep that in mind. You see the Parthian foot races last night? Darius ran like a gazelle. Jews don't go to foot races. Your old friend Simon himself used to run the wagering tables. We're not friends. Next. Okay, fine. So you did not go to the races. You stay home? I went to see my mother. Ugh, that would put me out, too. She asked when you're going to give her grandchildren? She didn't ask. I thought your parents don't speak to you. I had questions I couldn't ask anyone else. A mother of a son with talent like yours should be proud. She's ashamed that I could use a talent that God gave me against God. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys, let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. I love that line. Get used to different. Um, and this is so different than anything anybody would have anticipated. So we really wish we could be a fly on the wall for some of these conversations between the disciples. 
Now again, the rabbis invest everything in their disciples because they're going to carry the message. And so there's nothing written down. It's all in the disciples. So usually a rabbi will have one, two, something like that. Um, you, you don't want to overdo it. Um, but Jesus has got 12. And the, remember this, this, the poles, the extremes. So Jesus does this. So he, you know, this tax collector is in it. And then we've got sort of the guys in between. And then Jesus will call Simon the Zealot, who is a terrorist. Judas, who is a hardcore terrorist. Maybe Simon is more of a freedom fighter, and uh, Judas is is an assassin. Is is a <laughs> so how did that work? I mean, on a normal day, Judas and Simon were killing Matthews, especially the the Scari that Judas belonged to. They were renowned for assassinating their own people um, that had betrayed them particularly tax collectors. Do you see what I mean? That Jesus did this composite duality, that he's taking segments from all parts of society, rich, poor, uh, resisting Rome, accepting Rome, uh, learned, unlearned. Uh, he, he wants all people in order to be saved. And he, he drops the bomb. We don't want to walk away and miss it. Why, why does he do this? Um, because he's a doctor, and we are sinners. And Matthew needs God. Peter, Andrew, the fishermen need God. The terrorists need God. The Pharisees need God. The Sadducees need God. The Herodians need God. The Gentiles need God. We all do. God gives this opportunity, this call to all people. Remember, Mark is trying to show us this is the fulfillment of the Basora, that God calls to his mountain, to the presence of the Messiah, the world. He calls the Jew and he calls the Gentiles. It's all those that choose to follow. When Jesus said here, um, come, come with me, um, the, the way it's put in the Old Testament is that you walk with God that you walk with the Messiah. That means that you're, you're following him, you're, you're accepting the teachings, you're, you're doing what life is supposed to do. So it is a huge honor. I love the video because, you know, if, if a rabbi with Shimcha said, come, that was it. I mean, forget the money and the wealth. And what did Jesus see in Matthew? That, yeah, I, I can turn down the millions and millions of dollars. I can face the scorn of my own people without Roman protection uh, for the chance to follow Jesus. Whew. If if Matthew can be saved, there there is plenty of room uh, for all people, and we've got to keep that in mind. As as scummy as as um, nasty as they are, uh, if they change. Now, Jesus didn't run around and say, hey, those tax collectors, they're good people. We really all should uh, be tax collectors. He doesn't do that, does he? He picks someone out of that that's willing to change. At the end, the disciples work because they have Jesus in common. And that makes it 
stronger than what's different about them. And there's a lot that's different about them. And so that, I think, has been the power of Christianity. Not to be a movement of the poor, or not to be a movement of the rich, or not a movement of the educated or the movement of the uneducated, but all of it. What we have in common with Jesus is greater than what makes us different. I wish our country could get back to that um, as we as we struggle with things. But what are your questions? Should we assume that Levi was Matthew was educated or at least intelligent? He had to be to to do the kind of things. Um, and I didn't get into all today, but his his name is there's something going on. Um, that's Matthew, Levi, but then his father's name is a Greek name. So something uh, is he's different. Yeah. But obviously, you know, what, what does he record for us? What does he end up doing? Yeah, the first gospel, Matthew. <laughs> so um, the, 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 the guy was faithful. Yeah. So back to the what we started with as we wind down. Um, just picture yourself in Matthew's shoes. Are you allowing the voice of Jesus to invite you to a, a deeper, closer relationship with him? And the excuse of I'm not worthy is not a good excuse. The question is, do you want to walk with God? Do you want to continue in your growth, in your path that God has for you? And abandoning, like the video so uh, acutely showed, abandoning your own way uh, for the sake of the kingdom. And part of that is then a willingness to grow in our capacity to meet people where they are, no matter where they are. And with our life, with the way that we welcome them and encourage them and speak to them and just are hospitable towards them to invite them on this journey with us. Um, That's what Jesus is after. And brothers and sisters, it's what we're made for. We're not made for going at it on our own. We're not made for just building up our, our own lives. We are made to Avad and Shamar to serve and to protect and to invite people on this journey. Pastor Kurt's going to pray for us. All right. Let's pray. Father, our God, we are humbled by your word today. The reminder that we need you. We need a doctor. So does the rest of the world. So, Father God, may we be the first person to say that the medicine of Jesus works and be willing to share it with all those we come across. We know there are many in our world, O Lord, that are far from what you intended them to be. We pray that we are not among them, but that we will welcome them when they join the family of Christ, join your family. So help us keep our our eyes open and remember poor Matthew, who wasn't so poor, but was called by you to change and be what the world needed. May that be true of us as we continue to reach out to others. In your son's holy and precious name we pray.
Amen. Have a great day, guys. Thank you.